I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where us, two best friends and comedians, are reading celebrity memoirs so that nobody else has to. Because we don't think women should have to read anymore. It's gone too far. Enough is enough. I just think the reading, the jobs, the pressure is too high. So we are here. We're reading these books. We are forming opinions. And if that's not something you like, I would suggest you scooch along. But if you do love hot little opinions, hot tight little opinions hot tight little opinions for the ladies <laughs> then keep listening keep learning keep growing keep exploring and we're excited to have you here and you know who we're most excited about we are most excited about the people who give us a five-star review on itunes <laughs> and this week we are doing a special thank you to our australian listeners we love you guys so much thank you so much to the following people nelly in Oz. we love you in here, the studio, Sam A-X-O-X-O-T-U-2, Izzy Broberts, you're my bro, Bert, Hannah H. Lon, love ya a lot, Georgia the Beast, oh, we love a beast, Marguerite Mullins, that's a beautiful name, okay, I don't have a funny comment, it's just beautiful, Evie K, K, you're the best, Kate3537, my lucky number, Winter 4400, that's the beginning of my credit card number. Crazy Kiz, oh, we like them crazy. Lucy CG, I know a corner where they're selling Lucy's. Demi Whatever, hell yeah, my favorite saying. Rebecca Lee, love you, Bex. KZ 4000, oh, make it 5000. Toby Rose Jones, Jones in for your five star review. <laughs> Dolly D. Doe. I love that song. Eva Puscarica. Thank you so much. SHL92. Thank you. Lol Cats in a Bowl. Oh my gosh. That's a perfect jingle. Kate Hates Instapad. Oh, I'll hate Insta if you hate Insta. Alaska Heart. I don't know, but Alaska. Robin Margaret. Thank you so much. George Kell. Thanks for the Kells. Okay, love you guys. Okay, Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir, mm-hmm. what would you title the chapter about this last week? I wanted to quote Taylor Swift, but I actually think it'd be beginning of revenge. Okay. Because I'm starting my revenge process. Okay, this makes it sound like something horrible has happened to you. Well... A few years ago, I was ditched by a friend in my college group, very unceremoniously. So I'm going to a wedding at the end of September where she will be there and the college group who has not been divided into groups. But I will say one thing that I really want to do is look way better than her as a bridesmaid, which is something that would get to her and I know will get to her. And so I just joined a gym because I am on my way to the best body of my life in a way to ruin her life. (laughs) I love that you're not even having to get dumped to find the motivation for a revenge body. Khloe Kardashian, take notes. As a girl's girl, a boy cannot hurt me the way a woman can hurt me. (laughs) To be dumped by a friend is worse because it's two years later and I still go to weddings and see her. Also, it's weird because it's a war of attrition in terms of who wins the friends. When you and your boyfriend break up, I do think there's a pretty quick splitting of the friend group. Yeah. I am in like a 10-year-long battle for the college girls. Something I'm good at is playing the long game, especially when it comes to friendships. So I'm in it to win it. But I joined Equinox, which is something that when I had a job, I was like, I could never afford to do that. And for some reason, now that I don't have a job or literally any income at all, suddenly I'm like, It's a non-negotiable. I have to join Equinox. 
But to make it worth it, I'm trying to go at least 24 times a month. (laughs) Okay. I mean, you have been really good about it. Every time I text you in the morning, you're like just leaving bar class. And I'm always like, what the fuck? I have not gotten out of bed yet. Yeah. Well, the thing is that they charge you if you don't show up, which is very motivating to me to get out of bed because I cannot afford another $3. That literally would be $3 that sends me over the edge to bankruptcy. (laughs) So I like have to show up to bar class because like my mortgage is hanging in the threads. A mortgage. I'm kidding. It's just a rent, but I thought mortgage had a lot more panache and pizzazz. I will say I don't really get what mortgage is. (laughs) We don't have time. I'll explain it to you off camera. Okay. It's something that I've thought a lot about and I'm just like, how come people with houses pay like fancy rent? I'll tell you later. Anyway, part of the problem is I went from not working out for six or eight months to I went to like three really hard workout classes. I actually should at this point have the best butt in the world because I went to a class called best butt class. I swear to God, I went down for a deadlift at one point and I just never came back up. I have been walking around this goddamn town like a freaking little duck. I am quacking about. I am pumping my arms like wings to try to get more momentum with each step. I'm falling behind the people I'm walking with. I cannot keep up. It's tough, but that's why it's the beginning of revenge. And I think by the end of September, I'll be cruising through those best butt nabs workout classes and I'll come out and be like, look at this butt. Look at these abs. Aren't they the best? So wish me luck, everybody. Best of luck. Thank you. Ashley. Yes, Claire? If you had a memoir this week, what would the chapter be called? I would call it a friggin' blur. I truly cannot tell you what happened this week. I know that I drank a lot. I really need to take a break, I think. It's just there were a lot of weekday parties and now that I don't have a normal job, I just cannot tell you truly a single thing that happened to me this week other than the outline, the basics. I know that we had fun. I know you bonded with a lot of people by talking a lot of shit this week. I did. I really had like a Claire-esque week. (laughs) You just walked into a room and said, you know who I hate? (laughs) And you said, whoever hates that person too, come with me. I will say it's not my fault. It's because I was at this bar where they had a bunch of frozen drinks and I had like three large frozen margaritas. It turns out that's the recipe to get me to just be a fucking bitch. (laughs) I do believe that there's a couple of people in each group of friends or each community that are like free game to talk shit about. I could tell you who in college it was. I could tell you who in the comedy community it is. There's a couple of people where it's like if you say their name, it does just fill the space because everybody hates them. And if you catch somebody who doesn't hate them, then that's not somebody you even want to be friends with because they have terrible taste in people. You're like, why don't you hate this person? Listen, it started as personal growth. It started as me saying, there are some people that I just hate being in conversation with. I hate being around and I will no longer engage with those people. I think it's actually strong instead of being in these conversations where I'm miserable and annoyed the whole time. I'll just never talk to this person again. The problem is you see them around. And last night he just kept entering conversations I was in and then I would leave the conversation and tell anyone who would listen how much I hate him and I was just like I don't know you really signed up for this because if you had taken a hint from the last three months of me refusing to make eye contact with you you would have learned but instead what you did is you just wouldn't take a hint and now better than revenge I'll make everyone hate you versus best button abs second is just talking shit know who I don't have any shit to talk about whom This week's memoirist. For all the Gilmore whores. For all the Stars Hall hoes. <laughs> we've got a book for you. All those licky licky lukes. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I do apologize for this. This week we read Lauren Graham's Talking As Fast As I Can. Which is a name after my own heart because you and I. We talk fast. Sometimes people are like, I thought the podcast was in 2x speed and I looked at my phone and I thought, my God, these girls are on meth. And I say, you know what? We read about meth. We don't do meth. Well, I take meth legally. Oh yeah, Adderall, I forgot. But not when we podcast. Not when we podcast. I'm trying to speak slower, 
actually. So I'm not talking as fast as I can. I'm actually talking as slow as I can right now. That's true. I do put in actually quite an effort to be coherent on this podcast. And so the fact that I'm still not is frankly alarming. (laughs) As Jenna Jameson's dad said, I was trying my best, but my best was not good enough. (laughs) Anyway, Lauren Graham, Ashley, what did you know about her before this podcast? Honestly, a lot. Hit me. I was a Gilmore whore. I watched it constantly. I watched it every single day after school in the reruns. I don't think I actually ever watched new episodes when they were on, but I've seen every episode dozens of times. It's an absolute comfort show for me. I still watch it on Netflix quite regularly when I'm just like, what do I even watch right now? Gilmore Girls, always. I also have seen Parenthood. Like I know that I watched, I think, at least three or four seasons of Parenthood when I was reading her book and she mentioned that her character's name was Sarah Braverman. I was like, Braverman? Okay. (laughs) I don't recall a moment from Parenthood. I knew that she was dating Peter Krause from the show Sports Night. I feel like somehow all roads lead back to Sports Night. I loved Sports Night. Which was a show truly only watched by the Hamilton family. It really was. Sports Night is a show, so obviously it was famously Aaron Sorkin's biggest stud. My dad refused to watch The West Wing for years because he felt that Aaron Sorkin sold out and quit Sports Night to make The West Wing. (laughs) So back to Lauren Graham. (laughs) Yeah, I knew that she was on Caroline in the City for a little bit. I knew that she was on Seinfeld as the girl who rearranged her speed dial all the time. I knew she lived with Connie Britton for a while when they were like young and trying to make it in Hollywood. And they used to have all these crazy party game nights where they would invite Melissa McCarthy over. There was like a whole group of people that I honestly feel like nobody talks about anymore because Chris Hardwick was a part of it. And there was this whole crew of up and comers in LA that would all hang out and have these game nights that they talked about on that podcast, the Nerdist podcast. And it was weird that there was not really celebrity stories in her book. But anyway, what did you know about her? I obviously knew that she was in Gilmore Girls. I think I loved Gilmore Girls when it was on. I think it was something I watched a lot. (laughs) But I also think I might be conflating those moments with Everwood. It's possible. And then I knew she was in Parenthood. I don't watch it, but my mom does. And so in many ways, I watched it. (laughs) When I was young, I wanted to be a teen mom because of her. Yes, she made it look so fun. And I was like, I'm a messy, fast-talking idiot. I would have like a perfect daughter. That dynamic really, to me, felt almost genetically... Inevitable. I was like, of course... Crazy people have perfect children. I will have a perfect child. And whenever I was little and causing a scene, my mom would be like, when you have you as a daughter, and I'm like, I'm not getting me as a daughter. I'm getting Rory, idiot. <laughs> I'm like, that's how God works. <laughs> so she really made me want to be a teen mom. I was so impressionable when I was little that Jessica Simpson made me want to be a virgin until marriage. And then I watched one episode of Gilmore Girls and I was like, no, wait, I want to be a teen mom. (laughs) I wanted to be a teen mom so badly. I was like, this looks so fun. And then my other thing about Lauren Graham was I did see her at Hamilton. What? When I went to see it, we were sitting a few rows away from each other. Okay. And I was like, should I go tell her that she gave me the inspiration to become a teen mother just like her? (laughs) And I didn't. But I do want to say I famously recognized that Hamilton was problematic before anybody else. And I have the 2018 tweets to prove it. Anyway, should we get into this book? Yeah. Let's talk as fast as we can. Okay. So this book, talking as fast as I can, yammering with the best of them, really giving them a run for their money, 
I would say is an ode to Gilmore Girls more than anything. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes we're like, why was this book written? What was the purpose of this book? This book was written as a companion piece to the Gilmore Girls reboot. I have to say, if you are a Gilmore Girls fan or a Lauren Graham fan, I think you would like this book over the weekend at the beach or something. It's Greer adjacent, but it has a sense of purpose. You're like, okay, there is a clear reason for this book to exist other than a paycheck. I don't think Greer has the fandom to back up people just wanting to know whatever nonsense, but this knows that you love her from Gilmore Girls. She gives you everything as a Gilmore Girls fan you would want. She's like, we were in love with each other. We were so happy. Every day was magical. Here's what it was like day one. Here's what it was like day two. Here's my memories from set. It answers your most glaring Gilmore questions, but in like a after school special kind of way. I do feel that she and Lorelai have been so conflated as one in her mind also. I do think she was so good at being Lorelai like Gilmore because her and Laura like Gilmore are very similar. Yeah. And I think that's why she got the role and then also why it's so hard to differentiate them. And so the book is written very Lorelai-ish. This book is written in a way where you're like, is she Lorelai? Is Lorelai her? Like this line here, she goes, don't let your plan have the last laugh, but laugh last when your plan laughs. And when your plan has the last laugh, laugh back laughing. And you're just like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's very much written in the Lorelai voice. And I don't think it's contrived. I just do think that she started out similar to Lorelai. She played that character for like eight years. And when you're constantly reading other dialogue, like you're going to adopt those mannerisms. Like I talk like you sometimes. Sometimes I say or do things and I'm like, oh my God, I have to get away from fucking Ashley. (laughs) (laughs) It's always when you say the stupidest thing you've ever heard yourself say. (laughs) So Lorelai Graham was born. Who? So Lauren Graham was born... I just say Lauren Graham, Lorelai Gilmore. Those are very similar words. All two LGs. Life is good for them. So she was born 1967 in Hawaii, actually. When she was two years old, her family moved to Japan where her mom grew up the children of missionaries. When she was six, her parents separated. She says, my parents weren't together very long. They hadn't known each other well when they decided to get married, and then they had me right away when they were both just 22 years old. And, well, that about sums it up. They were very, very young. At the time, my mom was also trying to pursue a career as a singer, and it was decided that I should stay with my dad. They parted as friends, and my father made the obvious next choice, something we'd all probably do in his situation. He moved us to the Virgin Islands, where we lived on a houseboat. Okay, so there was a lot in that little paragraph, and I just want to start breaking it down. This is the last we ever hear about her mom. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. It's just uncommon, and I don't want to sound judgmental, but it is statistically uncommon for a couple to break up and the father to have sole custody, and we never hear from the mom again. That's just unlikely for a lot of reasons. And then for her to just never bring up the effects of it, I get that this book was not meant to be like a deep dive into her psyche, but I wonder if she's done that dive. Yeah, especially to have your mom leave you to pursue something creative and then you yourself also go on to become a performer. Like it's in your blood, but it's in the blood of a woman you don't really know. She never even goes on to explain what her relationship with her mom is like now. She dedicates the book to her mom and her dad, but she uses a photo of the three of them from when she's a newborn. And she talks about her dad a lot throughout the rest of the book. It seems like they're very close. It seems like she's very close with her stepmom. And she has three siblings from her dad's next marriage that she's very close with. Her mom never comes up again. And I do think that this book really does serve the purpose, if the purpose is for a Gilmore Girl fan to get their Gilmore Girl fandom on, because I think it's very purposefully not that deep or dark. Yeah. Like it's as deep as an episode of Gilmore Girls. Exactly. You're like, oh, that is probably something to deal with. In the exact same way where I saw a teenage mom dealing with the effects of having to raise a child by 
herself. And I was like, that looks like so much fun. Nothing's too hard that a cup of coffee can't fix it. That's exactly how having your mom abandon you as a baby is treated in this book. Well, my mom wants to become a singer. Good luck to her. Anyway, then we lived on a houseboat. That was silly. <laughs> and you're like, was it silly or was it a deep abandonment issues lodged into your psyche? She like jokes about it later. She goes, we moved to a house you couldn't dive off of. Cool. <laughs> yeah, like the houseboat didn't have a motor. So she's like, we were just living in like a bathtub off the coast. Yeah. And he was like, it was very bohemian. Everyone there was chill as hell. And she was like, okay, sounds good. And it sounds like she had a great time. I mean, her and her dad's are very close. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like she had a fun childhood. It sounds fun. It made me want to live in a houseboat. This was not the book for anybody looking to get into like darkness or these weren't essays. It was like, I have to give you the story. This is literally what happened. We're not going to dive into how it affected me. Because that's not fun. And this is kind of like a fun light little book. Yeah. So after the houseboat, they moved to the Southampton. It sounds like they move a bunch. One of the things that sticks out in her childhood is that she skipped a grade. So I guess her dad just used to read to her a ton and she kind of picked it up. She went through a bunch of testing and they decided that she would be just unfulfilled being in kindergarten. So they put her in first grade. So now she had missed the first couple weeks of first grade and she had left all her friends behind in kindergarten. And you and I both have thoughts about grade skipping. She says, skipping a grade also gave me the sense throughout my entire childhood that I'd been given an extra year. It floated around in my head like a lucky coin. Something I wanted to hold on to was for as long as I could until the day I really needed to use it. Tell me your thoughts on grade skipping. I went to public school. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so my thoughts are potentially controversial. I think that school is almost useless. I think it's like a socialization tool. I'm not saying school's useless. Obviously, you need to learn things. I'm saying I'm out here, a successful adult who doesn't know a single thing. And what I learned in school is social cues. And I think that when you're skipping a grade and like being that youngster who's the center of attention for this weird reason, it's like very damaging. I like fully agree. And it's funny because in here, the idea that she could read in kindergarten. So what is she going to do? Learn to read again. When I was teaching preschool, we had three-year-olds who could read. And I remember the mother of the child who could read was like, I don't want him having free play time anymore. Since he's such a good reader, couldn't you guys use that extra time to be tutoring him further to be getting him as far as he could? And I remember being like, he's already ahead of everybody. Like, why do you need to get him even further? This is a kid who doesn't have any friends. He needs the free time to learn to make friends. Nobody gets to the end of high school and never learn to read. Learning to read is inevitable. Learning to make friends and share is not. Yeah. It's just so funny that the idea that you're like, he's already two years ahead of everybody. Can you take 20 minutes of fun from a three-year-old to make sure he's now three years ahead of everybody? My friend in college had skipped a grade and it was funny because I do feel like there's this idea that you're racing ahead and the way she says you get an extra bonus here. I do think that that's a mentality. Like if you could get through high school quicker, if you could get through college quicker, then you like have a leg up on everybody. And it makes me laugh because it's like, okay, and then what? You'll never skip so many grades. You were the first person on earth. Yeah. Like whatever it is that you want to be ahead at, somebody's already been doing it for a thousand years. Like however fast you can get through high school and college, somebody got through it the year before still. So why not take your fucking time? I graduated college a year early Mm -hmm. and I did it just because I was sick of being in upstate New York. I also think financially it makes sense. College is expensive. College is expensive. It didn't require me going that far out of my way to do it. So I was like, oh yeah, sure, I'll just do it. It's not that I felt that I gained a year back. It just was this thing that I had done and then you're in the regular world and I do think I like felt a little bit young and important for a minute where I was like all my friends are 22 and I'm 21 Mm -hmm. and so I've achieved something by like having a job and an apartment and all that shit and then it just goes away because then you're 24 and everyone's doing the exact same thing as you. (laughs) We always say this about comedians who start early and then their thing is being the young comedian. You never want your thing to be the young anything because eventually you won't be young anymore and if you don't have a second thing then you just have nothing. 
it's funny because rich people do the opposite. Yeah. And I don't think the poors know that. <laughs> that they think they're like getting a leg up on the competition by like racing through. Rich people in private school will hold their children back for years on end. They'll have a September kid that they'll put in the year behind anyway and then hold them back another year. And then we've got a 24-year-old graduating high school. You'll have no idea how well my 30-year-old son did on his SATs this year. (laughs) Only his 92nd try. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so she skipped a grade and felt that it was like her extra year to cash in whenever she so chose. And then she does end up just kind of like squandering it, having a year where she didn't quite know what she wanted to do. She didn't spend it really doing anything that exciting. I wouldn't say she squandered it. She just lived the next year the way everybody would live. But that's what I mean is like she kind of viewed it as this fast forward and then it turns out it was just a year. She Mm -hmm. goes to NYU to study acting. She drops out and ends up going to Barnard to study English. Mm -hmm. And then she does her bonus year where she is just auditioning and waitressing and she's living that life that I think that I definitely lived where you think you have all these shortcuts to become a creative and so I need all these part-time jobs because I need all this free time and then it turns out having six part-time jobs is actually more than having one regular job just without any insurance and somehow you're still making less money and you have no free time to do anything so she's like I was literally working from 8am to like 2am because she was working retail in the morning bartending at night she's like the only time I could practice anything was at 3am So after a year of fruitlessly trying to make it as an actress in New York City, she kind of just makes a split second decision to apply for this grad school audition. And I guess it's this audition where you audition for a bunch of schools at once. And she gets a full scholarship to a school in Texas. Southern Methodist University. Smoo. So she goes, she does her graduate school work. She has a great time because this is the first time she's on like a real campus school. She was going to school in New York City before. And I think it's nice that she had this experience. I have her getting her MFA is the most fun you ever have. Yeah, because you're just pursuing art. It's like college, but for adults and you're in a club. I don't know. So the thing about being an actor is she really wants to be in theater. She takes acting very seriously. She wants to be a Broadway star. And so she really needs her equity card, which I guess is... It's like a driver's license for Broadway. I wouldn't say that. (laughs) It's like being a SAG member. Oh, yeah. It's like being in the union. To get equity credit, you have to be in an equity performance. But to be in an equity performance, you have to be an equity member. I mean, it's like the classic thing with all entry-level things. Like when you graduate college and you're like, okay, this entry-level job requires two to three years experience and you can't get two to three years experience until someone hires you for that experience where you need experience to be hired. So she joins this performance called Barn Theater in Augusta, Michigan. And I guess it's one of these small launch pad of future success. It's this summer program where they put on performances. They like ship in Broadway actors for the main roles, but there's opportunity for younger cast members to be discovered. You can come and work as a crew member and then maybe you'll become a cast member and then you can get your equity that way. So her very first summer, she's selected to audition for an equity role, which is a really big deal because normally you have to work two or three summers before you're even considered. But the role is for basically a big old booty. Yeah, this role will require tush and so basically instead of testing anyone's acting skills they just have these women come in and like show their butts yeah they pick the four hottest women and they just say come show us your derrieres ladies and she said the audition process was actually very respectful like they had you come in disrobe and then they had someone follow you with a sheet and then they dropped the sheet so that the director could see your touche and then you kind of got resheeted and shuffled out and she was like sure I want my equity card let's go for it and then as soon as the audition was over she kind of freaked out and realized that she was deeply uncomfortable with it. Luckily, I guess, didn't get the part because I think if she had, she might have 
gone with it and done something that she didn't feel comfortable doing. She has some actually pretty good piece of advice in here. I think as you get older and more successful, it's easier to trust those gut instincts, but they were probably always there. Much like Jenna Jameson, learn your boundaries. I mean, I think that's a good life advice. Figure out what your boundaries are and just stick by them. And she's talking about how the girl who did get it was very fine being naked on stage. And she's like, I'm glad it went to her. And she says, I got this piece of advice from one of my acting coaches. He dismissed the idea that every actor should be able to tackle every part. Charlie Chaplin did just one thing, he'd say. He just did it better than anyone else. Later on, I'd learned not to feel too bad when I realized a part wasn't right for me. But at that age, with only high school and college plates on my resume, I didn't think I had any right to be choosy or to have much of an opinion about what I wanted to do. At that time, I only had the vaguest hint that my instincts might be worth respecting. That's something that we talk about learning. I try to take my sorority rejection as like a good lesson for you guys who don't know. I did rush every sorority at my college and get rejected by all of them two years in a row. <laughs> but I have looked back and been like, okay, yeah, I don't want to be friends with people who don't want me. And right now it's like a comic when I don't get booked on a show, I feel like I'm good enough to do. I used to like fight tooth and nail to try to get on that show and prove them wrong. And now I've learned, I'm like, you're not going to prove people wrong who don't want you. Go places you're wanted. Work with people who want you to succeed because they're going to see the best in you and they're also going to forgive your mistakes. Whereas if somebody hates you and thinks you're not good enough to do something and you try and prove them wrong, they're not going to remember it. If you fail, they're going to go see I told you. And if you crush, they're going to write it off as a one-off. And I do think that that's kind of what this is getting to. Stop trying to fit yourself into situations that aren't necessarily going to work. Exactly. So a lot of this book, I want to say, felt a little greer in that it was like a very sanitized version of the acting experience, I think. And I feel like Lauren Graham was a real, just like working actor. She's not a celebrity. She's just a person and this is her job and she does what she does well which is exactly what she's saying here but this was a line that kind of like annoyed me almost where she says she writes about getting a not great review the director says look at it this way your reviews can only get better from here and she says but I'd never know because I haven't read a review of myself since that day I've also never googled myself what good can come of it I'm just like, okay, after school special. Well, she does go on to say good reviews will get back to you. Your friends and your agents and people will be like, here's a good thing they said. I'm just like, how is she this mentally well that she cannot be curious about what the internet thinks? I guess if you grew up before the internet, it's easy to stay out of it. True. She does say negative feedback doesn't matter. She says only two pieces of feedback matter. If someone told you they liked what you did or if they said they couldn't hear you well enough. As an actor, speak up is a pretty objectively helpful piece of criticism. The next chapter is about food and women in Hollywood body shit. And this I find really interesting because it was a not that interesting chapter. It wasn't interesting, but it wasn't super sanitized. My whole feeling about this book is as a not Lauren Graham fan, I wasn't her enemy, but I wasn't a fan of hers. Nothing was interesting, but also nothing was problematic. Nothing made me hate her, but I also was like, what a load of nothing. Yeah, I will say this chapter got a little bit wet for Ellen and I was like, stop. Things did not age well. She had a whole chapter about how great Ellen generous is and then she also has a line about how here in 2020, we'll probably have a female president. Hello, Mrs. Clinton. And I was like, oh boy, you are not going to like it over here. <laughs> it gets worse. So she writes about dietary tips and how everything is just all fucking over the place. Like being a woman in Hollywood, there's just so many different things. Like protein is best, vegan is best, this is best, this is best. We have read this this exact thing in a handful of memoirs now where these women feel the need to write something about food and the diet industry, but what they end up saying is nothing. And I have decided that instead of condemning these women for writing 
these nothing chapters. It's so indicative of Hollywood being so obsessed with bodies and like asking women what they ate today and like what their diet routine is and how they stay slim and how they do this and how they do that, that no woman feels that she can write a memoir without including a chapter about food. It's so ingrained in their brain as a question that they get asked that they're like, well, if I don't include this. What do people want to know? This is what they want to know. I mean, look yeah. at Jenna Jameson. She had that whole chapter where she says, there's only about 10 questions people ask me. So save your fucking time and think of an original question. Here are the answers. And one of them is, do you ever eat? And I do think as an actress, you're asked about your diet so fucking often that if you were to sit down and write a list, you're like, I guess this is the number one thing people want to hear about me. So I have to include it just to make anybody a little bit satiated. Yeah. It's so weird. Like, let's just stop asking. I think the point of this chapter is she's like, there is no magic cure. It just is eating fewer calories and working out. And I do think at the end of the day, that is the answer. Yeah. And everybody takes it to different extremes. We all react differently to dairy or whatever. But at the end of the day, if you're only in a thousand calories and going on a six mile run, I'm going to guess you'll lose weight. Yeah, but also just figuring out what the thing is that makes you feel best. Everyone comes at it with these definitives. Like in this chapter, she does a giant chunk of them. For example, you have to be vegan or you have to have a high protein meat diet. Those are both right answers for different people. You know what I mean? The problem is just that like no one is willing to admit and no one's like looking into what people's body types are. And and then they'll like get into it in like a too hyper specific way being like, oh, the blood type diet where you go in based on your blood type because everyone's different. It's like, no, no, everyone's different. It's interesting that this chapter goes straight into one about aging gracefully in plastic surgery. She does add it's working out and it's cutting back calories, but she also goes, and I work out with a trainer, Michelle Lovett, and she's like, and I have better food. It's easy to be skinny when you're rich, when you can pay someone to work you out and when you can pay for top meals. Like you right now doing Equinox, it's easier to work out when you have a beautiful place to go that will also charge you extra money if you don't show up. (laughs) It's easier to work out when you're like, my children can't go to college so I can go to Pilates. (laughs) So I better fucking make the most of it. Anyway, so this pretty honest, not interesting, but honest chapter about food goes straight into a, in my opinion, deeply dishonest chapter about plastic surgery and aging gracefully. And this is probably the one chapter in the book that I will truly ding her for. Like, obviously I have other qualms because I'm a petty bitch, but I like Lauren Graham a lot. But this chapter, I raised an eyebrow and I was able to do that because I don't have Botox. She says that she would like to age gracefully, although I'm not entirely sure yet what that will mean. And then she goes on to talk about if I could be guaranteed that no one, including myself, would notice something I did to my face to look younger or somehow better, maybe I'd do it. But I feel like I have one of those faces that shows that sort of stuff too easily. So she does have a face that shows that sort of stuff quite easily. And that's how I know she filled up with filler. She says that she hates when you can like look at a TV and all you see is filler and you're like, oh boy, do not meet you in five years. No, not in five years because that's why I ding this chapter because it's not like she wrote this and then shot Gilmore Girls Year in the Life where she was filled to the brim. It was just so ironic to read because the first thing I noticed when I watched Gilmore Girls Year in the Life was how plastic surgery Lauren Graham looked. I think this gets to a deeper Hollywood secret, an unspoken truth in Hollywood that they consider injectables not plastic surgery because it's not technically surgery because this is what she says. She says, it's a bummer that it's even an option to appear more youthful by chopping off your ears and reattaching them in order to hoist up your neck flaps. It's confusing to me that my aversion to doing that has any sort of bearing on my work as an actor. You mean you weren't willing to chop off and reattach your ears in order to hoist your neck flaps up, Lauren? Don't you care about us? What's your commitment to your craft? Mean people on the internet yell, I wish this possibility simply didn't exist so that we all had somewhat of a fair playing field. I do think it's interesting that, yeah, 
She brings up a good point. It does suck that we live in a world where you feel like to compete, you have to do so much because just like steroid use, if one person starts playing that game, then we all have to kind of keep up by playing that game. Yes. And it does suck that it's like, oh, if you want to be sexy and look like the current ideal in a bikini, you better be ready to like not sit on your butt or your stomach for six straight months after a Thailand trip so that they can inject the fat back into your body. It sucks that that feels like the barrier to entry these days. But that being said, I do think she doesn't count injectables as that because clearly she's all injected up. I don't think anyone's getting facelifts anymore. I mean, maybe they are. But she does mention Botox and stuff like that. And she is so definitely Botox to hell that I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't begrudge you for it. I do believe that that's the name of the game. I don't think that she could have really, I don't know, maybe she could have gotten by without it. I don't know what she would have looked like, obviously. I'm very pro-Botox, very pro-filler. I used to think I would get a lot of filler someday. I still think I'm going to get Botox, honestly, probably sooner versus later, but I don't want to get carried away with anything, so I agree with her on that. I do just think it's interesting that she's like, I don't like when you just look at someone and all you can see is the work they've gotten done, and I'm like, Oh man. I think it's like you have to look at it as like a fix for a thing you don't like and not necessarily like a constant attempt to perfect yourself because you'll never be perfect. The thing with my filler or Botox thing is forehead lines. I would for sure get my forehead lines Botox. That's how I feel about under eye filler. I always thought that I would want to get a nose job. That's always been on my list since I was like fucking 13 years old. I've been like, if I ever have money, I'll get a nose job. But now I'm starting to wonder if I wouldn't want that because there's like one glaring thing on my face that I don't like and that's my nose. And I'm scared that if I got it changed then I would notice something else on my face that I don't like. What if I like find out that my cheeks are bad and my chin is bad and my everything else is bad? That's true. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> I also do wonder if there's going to be a backlash on all the filler and stuff. I think that there's three faces that you can get now. It's like the Chloe, the Kim Kylie, or the Kendall Emily Ratajkowski. <laughs> and I wonder if it'll start to be cool to be somebody recognizable. The way that so many celebrities look the exact same right now is really freaky. And they all have the same body and they all have the same face and they all wear the same clothes. And it's really hitting a point where I'm just like, okay, who has the best personality? (laughs) (laughs) So then this chapter kind of ends out where she's talking about like the different stages of female career. She says famously there are three roles and three stages for women in Hollywood. There's babe, district attorney, and driving Miss Daisy. And that's so true. There's like the hot young thing and then there's the professional career bitch or mom and there's the old lady. And she says that her career so far has been gal about town and mom. Here's another part where I feel like she's slightly dishonest, but I have heard her on a podcast before talk about how taking the role in Gilmore Girls was bizarre because she was skipping to mom at 31 which most people don't do yet Mm -hmm. and in this book she says that never once occurred to her and it felt like such a good role that why wouldn't she do it but I distinctly remember hearing her talking about how her taking Lorelai Gilmore was her skipping but she felt so strongly that it would be a successful show that she was like yeah I'm gonna do it well that's interesting because she also talks about when she was running around New York City she always had a denim shirt and mm-hmm. then a blazer, depending on whether or not she was like a mom role or not. And this sounds like it was in your, her 20s. Yeah. So I do think she had a look that could be played up or played down. They really do just have a couple woman spots and they're like, these are the roles for the women's. Except for Golden Girls. <laughs> Golden Girls was the best thing that's ever happened to women. Yeah, it taught you that you can be old and still funny. And you can be old and still slutty. You could be old and still stupid, which is something we've taken to heart. <laughs> yeah, I hope that when I'm old, I can still be stupid. My biggest fear is that I'll get wise. 
So she says as an actress, she has never watched herself, that she doesn't like seeing it. It makes her nervous. But she binged all of Gilmore Girls in a weekend writing this book so that she could go back and try to recall the memory she had. And she was like, it was such a blur. It does sound like they were working insane hours. I know in movies, you work really long days because you have a finite amount of time and a finite amount of money. But I think typically sitcoms have a decent schedule. I think hour-long dramas are one of the harder schedules. I think that's why people leave them. Especially because when it's an ensemble cast, you aren't in every scene and there's a lot more downtime and I think they can schedule you a lot more generously. Like Gilmore Girls, Lorelai or Rory was almost always there. And then they were also all dialogue dense. So she says the average hour-long show is about 50 pages in script. There's got up to 86. Which is insane. But so this chapter is her going through and watching every season and giving you a memory or two she has. It's not particularly compelling, I guess, unless you're like an absolute Gilmore Girls stan. Yeah. I mean, I definitely found it interesting. One thing that I think was one of the most interesting things is that she and Rory or Alexis Bledel did not meet until they were shooting the pilot. She said that because of the weird time turnaround, because she was still working on a different show at the time, there was kind of a time crunch and they didn't do a chemistry read, which for two roles that require chemistry, that's so rare in network television. I think that they were like, I don't know, where else are we going to find a different actress with these eyes? I also didn't know this was Alexis Bledel's first ever role. Yeah, she says that those first scenes of Gilmore Girls were her first ever speaking roles on set. See, that is a memoir I wouldn't be interested in. (laughs) I don't want to hear about all the times she didn't know if it was going to work out or not before she got one of the most famous TV roles of the 2000s at 18. I guess she probably had a couple weeks of auditions that sucked. And then luckily, before she had to do laundry again, she got a starring role. I wonder maybe if there's like some other shit that's gone down. With Alexis? Yeah. I still don't care. There could be some darkness. I don't care. Behind those light blue eyes, I don't think so. What if there's meth? I'm still not interested, honestly. Okay. Well, Alexis, if you're thinking about writing a memoir, we shan't be covering it here. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, unless you guys wanted us to. I'll do anything for you guys. (laughs) Worms first. Claire second. Alexis third. Okay, so speaking of those big blue eyes, this line was another one that I just found really interesting. I mean, she loves this cast, so I think that that was really beautiful. She calls out literally everyone first and last name. But then she says most other shows on the WB at the time were peopled with young hotties. I love that we were peopled with a lot of interesting people. I really do think that that's specifically calling the cast not hot, which is interesting because the cast was deeply hot. The side characters weren't necessarily hot. It wasn't a show where like even the teachers at the school had to be hot, even though they were. Max Medina was hot, whatever. But the townspeople weren't hot, I guess. Kirk was an uggo, but... Yeah, but I mean, Rory's boyfriends were fucking smoke shows to this day. Luke was a fucking babe. I mean, and then the premise of the show is that Rory and Lorelai are just so beautiful that everything works out forever. That's just what the show is about. You can go through hard times but if you're strikingly beautiful and then you have like a twin daughter who's also strikingly beautiful things will work out. It's very interesting to me the way that people talk about parasocial relationships people have with like influencers or online personalities because I think that makes sense because they're selling their day-to-day life. So it makes sense that you think you know about their lives. What's weirder to me is the parasocial relationship people have with TV casts who we know are presenting a fictional TV show. 
Yes, when they're like, oh, what was this relationship like in real life? Are you guys best friends? But she really does a good job of selling that fantasy back to the reader. I don't think it's that much of a stretch. It does seem like everybody was nice and they got along. It seems like a woman-helmed TV show, so that's an easier place to get along with people. Yeah. But she is very aware that what you want, as the typical reader of this book, is to hear that everything was just like you imagined behind the scenes and they were all best friends and it was so fun and it was a blur and they were up all night just memorizing so much dialogue and they all talked so fast and they had so much fun. Yeah. But she also does it with Parenthood too. Parenthood people are obsessed with her and her on-screen daughter May's friendship. It's a thing that the internet will like lose their shit over. It doesn't seem like her and Alexis were getting lunch too often off the set. But she does really sell this wholesome idea that Dar's Hollow kind of is real. And when they're together, it is a family. And here are the fun memories. Also, I have heard rumblings of the fact that there was tension with Luke's role. I heard that Lorelai and Luke didn't super get along. And she's so nice about him in this book. She talks about how originally he didn't have to be the love interest, but he plays his character so well that it develops inevitably. And she's like, Take this as a note, young actors. If you are interesting enough, the camera will find you. So then the show gets canceled. And I didn't know this, that during the show's run, the WB and the UPN merged to create the CW. Yes. In those negotiations, I guess they wouldn't pay Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband. I didn't even know she had a husband. I'd never heard of Dan Palladino. Yeah, they co-did the show. This is the only situation on earth where I'd only ever heard of the woman. I did not know there was Mr. Sherman Palladino. Yeah, I think that it's because he's just kind of there. You think he's very much Tina Fey's husband that she just drags along with? You know, sometimes it's like fun to have a business partner that you like bounce ideas off of. I can't imagine that life. I've never had that, but (laughs) I think that she like likes working with him and like bouncing her ideas off of him and like she'll say something and then he says yes or no. They left the show for the final season. Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh my God. That's like very well known in all of Gilmore Girls that the last season is not worth paying attention to because Amy Sherman Palladino was not present. So then the fact that she was kind of shocked that the show ended up getting canceled felt weird to me. I also felt like the show kind of did conclude when she's like, we just left it on a cliffhanger. It's like, not really. It did pretty much wrap up. How did it end? Rory graduates college and gets a job as a road reporter on the Obama campaign. And then they have like a big goodbye party in Stars Hollow and it rains. And so then they get the whole town together and Luke stays up all night making it so that the party can happen even though it's raining. And he like collects all the tarps from all the townspeople and makes this makeshift tent in the town square so they can still have Rory's goodbye party. And then Luke and Lorelai get back together because it was so cute. That's a pretty... Solid conclusion. Yeah. This is another thing I did not know about Lauren Graham. And I don't know if it's because it wasn't that publicized in the celebrity circuit or if because I just wasn't at a point in my life where I had my nose to the grindstone with celebrity culture the way I do now. But apparently she was famously single. I don't even know if it was so much that she was famously single as much as it was that she just like was single. And that much like the eating question, that's a oft asked question. And so maybe it felt specifically grating. Like it does for me coming from Jews, the amount that, I, <laughs> that I'm asked about my love life, it's like probably not a lot of people care that much, but because it comes up so fucking often, it feels like intrinsic to my personality now. Got it. And I think that it's the same for her. Like I think that people on the red carpet are just like, are you seeing anyone? And she talks about how at a certain point they were like rolling their eyes in the back of their heads being like, this bitch still single. And it's like, no, they probably weren't. It's probably the same people asking this question for 10 years and they're bored of the question too. It just feels like they're bored of your answer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Famously single or just single and having to talk about it publicly a lot, which I get why that's annoying. She writes about what it was like. I think it is 
hard. People are fucking obsessed with women of a certain age who stay single. And by women of a certain age, I mean 27. She says that one time her dad was on a plane next to a woman reading a People magazine. And he was like, that's my daughter about a picture of Lauren. And she goes, you let her know I found my husband late in life too. It's still possible. Hmm. She talks a lot about dating red flags, even though she knew better. But like at a certain point, it just wears down on you. And I related to that a lot. She says, I wanted to hold out for men with good behavior, but ultimately I gave in to less good behavior because I was working all the time and I wasn't sure when the next chance to meet someone would be. One thing I learned starting off with very low standards is a surefire way to ensure they'll be met. That is so true. I think I've like entered not so great relationships just because I'm like, I don't know, I'm in the mood to date right now and this one's here. I'm like, when will I meet another guy? I don't know. I'm in New York City, a city that's famously all women. (laughs) Manhattan is actually historically the island of Lesbos. (laughs) And now it's Bushwick. (laughs) So I did like this chapter, but then she meets Peter Krause from Sports Night. Who I guess was in Parenthood. She says she had an almost thing with Matthew Perry, but they were just friends. Yeah. So she meets Peter Krause. She said they had like an almost moment five years before they started in Parenthood together. And then they were on screen brother and sister, but they had this connection. And this is a line that I really liked. She said, there's so much to negotiate. Once you really get to know someone, the beginning should feel easy and inevitable. Like it feels like they kind of tried to not date because they're like, this might be annoying for work, but then they're like, we both just like each other a lot. So we just have to do it. And I like that a lot. The beginning shouldn't feel like you're pushing up against something to be like, I will make this relationship work. You're not trying to shove a round peg into a triangle hole. Like if it's not easy now, when would it be easy? Like when you're married, try having a kid, see if that fixes things. Yeah. My aunt who said that also when I was talking about a friend of mine, whose relationship I don't like. And she was like, being married is really hard when you like them. If you love someone, it's hard to stay married for a long time. So if there's a lot of problems don't go down that road. (laughs) She also says, last week I opened the car door and one of Peter's golf balls rolled out and onto the street and I thought, there was a time when this would have been a very big deal. I take these items for granted, but back then a man's golf ball rolling out of my car would have prompted frenzied calls to my girlfriends. He left a golf ball in the car. He just left it there. What does it mean? What does it mean? Should I text him about it? I should, right? He's probably looking all over for it. I wish I'd enjoyed my single days more and spent my free time reading or becoming a better photographer or something and not so much worried about the meaning of golf balls. Again, it should feel easy and inevitable if you're just like, what is a golf ball? What is the meaning of this? Yeah. And she goes, here's the thing. I was fine on my own and so are you, but it can be hard when you feel ready for happy couplehood and you seem to have missed the train. And she talks about coming back from working so hard on her career. And I do think as an actress, because you're on set a lot, because you're working insane hours, it's all the time. And she does seem like a hustler who is like every free moment, never stop this party from going. And she's like, I came up for air one day and everybody was married and I was like, fuck, I missed it. And I do think she's like, look, it's coming, just not on your time frame. That's beautiful. So then we get into this chapter called Labor Days, where we just kind of get a trip down memory lane of the jobs she had prior to acting. And she does give some like really interesting little nuggets here. I was very into this chapter because I do think she represents a much more relatable honest. She's not a superstar. She's not a Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. She's not Jennifer Lawrence. She's a working actor. And she's had an experience that I think can both give you hope, but is also realistic of you just have to fucking keep at it way longer than you'd like to. And then eventually you'll get to a point where you can feel safety for a minute. So she talks about always having a job until the acting work interfered with her day job too much that she couldn't maintain both, which is kind of a mentality you and I have both had. And she says, for years before I was ever cast in a real part, I auditioned for and ended up making many commercials. Some actors I knew at the time thought commercials were a bad pursuit. They felt they weren't artistic enough. Some worried that the repetition of days spent holding up a jar of peanut butter and grinning crazily at it would give them bad habits as an actor. 
For me, I found that the routine of auditioning almost every day made me more able to handle my nerves when something bigger came up. I'd schlep into the city from Brooklyn with my giant book bag in which I always carried both a blue denim shirt and a black blazer. And even if I didn't get the job, I felt like I had done something that day. She's just a grinder. I respect it. She talks about all the silly like acting adjacent jobs she did where she was like a dog mascot. She talks about showing Uno at the toy convention. And I was like, oh my God, was every actress a toy convention model? The toy convention to series regular pipeline is... It's apparently the, the greatest festering swamp in all of LA. <laughs> She was also a background actress a lot. So I was like, she was in it hustling and she didn't get a big break until Lorelai. Yeah. When she was 31, 32. I so. mean, she's definitely been in big things. I think she was in a couple movies before she was Lorelai. She says it was the first time she felt like, okay, I'm not waking up every morning wondering how will I pay my next set of bills? And I yeah. do think that that's true, that a good role in a movie does not guarantee the next thing until your name. Also, she was doing a lot of walk-on roles in sitcoms and stuff that seems really cool. And she was on some of the biggest shows of that time. But that's not a huge paycheck. She worked as a cocktail waitress at a comedy club called The Improv on 46. The excellent comic David Tell was there. And then Ray Romano started his stand-up. Every celebrity name job she has is glowing. It makes me wonder why she doesn't mention Connie Britton. I'm like drumming up a feud in my head. I just feel like if there wasn't some falling out, then why didn't she talk about that wonderful time that they lived together? I'd love to invent a feud. Or let's parent trap them. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. And I think we could get Connie and Lauren back together. Okay. Now let's talk about her first novel. I think that this is a really interesting little chunk because first of all, she's obviously so, so fucking proud of it. Like it made me want to read it. You know how we read Mariah Carey's memoir and we were like, oh, this is a memoir to tell you that she wrote her own songs. Like that was the secret message of that entire thing. Yeah. I do feel like more than Gilmore Girls, more than Parenthood, Lauren Graham's like, did you know I wrote a novel? And it's like, no, I did not, Lauren. Now I do. I think I was aware, but I don't think I cared. And now that she's so fucking proud of it and really views it as a second arm in her career, writing, adapting projects for the screen, all this shit. Ellen is the one who gave her the confidence to do that, honestly. So that's the one redeeming quality of that old bitch. (laughs) She is very into the fact that she wrote this book. James Patterson gives her advice about writing and says, keep going, keep going, keep going. And she said, whoa, that pretty much says it all, I guess. And that does pretty much say it all. I will say ironic coming from a man who like probably has not written a book in 30 years. I know, but he did keep going, keep going, keep going for a minute until he got to the point where he could just hire ghostwriters. True. So now that she was working on Parenthood and her schedule was a lot easier because now it was an ensemble cast and she didn't have to really like worry about being in every fucking scene. She had all this free time and she just started writing. She just spilled out onto the page. She wrote this novel and I really liked this line about the creative process. She said, the first thing I wrote was an anxiety dream that Franny has the night before an audition. It ended up also being one of the first things I cut. That is so interesting and like so true to the keep going mentality. Drafts are just drafts. You have to not be afraid to kill your babies, legalize abortion in Texas. (laughs) Sometimes you write something and even something you really like, but then it just isn't servicing the project and you have to cut a great joke. You have to cut a great paragraph that's like beautifully written. There are just things that have to go. Her novel, it was just a fun little thing she was doing. And then she sent some pages to her agent who sent it to a literary agent who was like, this is going to be a thing. And she starts freaking the fuck out because she says, suddenly my solo trailer project had become a new way in which I potentially set myself up for more rejection. It is so easy to have a passion, but as soon as you're on the brink of that passion being like widely seen or widely judged, it's so fucking stressful because that's such a rejection to have something that's deeply true to you be out there as a thing that people could say no to. She starts writing this novel in the middle of working on parenthood and 
Parenthood, I think she did feel about that cast and crew the way she says she felt about the Gilmore Girls because she's like, we loved each other. They were all still really friends. And she says the hours were incredible. And because of all this free time, she was able to write this book. And I think it's really interesting that this fear of rejection comes at a time where she's able to stop and reevaluate and then decide to like grow further because she also says parenthood was the first time in her life where she's able to go, oh, wow, I've made it. And not in an I'm getting an Oscar kind of made it. I made it in that for the first time in the 15 years I've been a working actress, I don't wake up in the morning with ulcers wondering where my next paycheck is going to come from. I don't feel like the ground is going to fall out. I don't feel like I have to keep hustling in that same way to make sure that the ball doesn't drop and stay down forever. And she says, she goes, there's way more actresses who made it and then fell off than people who started and just kept going forever. I mean, something we hear all the time in comedy is they're like, oh, you just need one big break. That's not true. Gilmore Girls could have come and gone. You can have something big and if you don't, keep it going, it will die on the vine. Yeah. No matter how big it was. Like people blow up and then fall out all the time. Well, that's like one of the things I was talking about last week with my post-viral anxiety because then I get so nervous that I'm like a one-hit wonder. Finally, with Parenthood, she was able to stop and go, this is my career. I've made it in the sense that this is something I can count on now for the rest of my life. Plus, like being a series regular on two shows really gets you enough paycheck to probably Yeah, but that's chill. what I'm saying. Like, mm-hmm. she made it. Yeah. She like, could take her eye off the ball and really say, what else is there in my life? Like, she says on every break from Gilmore Girls, on every break from Parenthood, she was auditioning for other movies, doing other plays. Mm-hmm. She never stopped. And so she starts on this other thing, and I do feel like... It really is a testament to the fact that all growth is pain. The minute something's finally working, you're like, okay, I have to add another thing now. And now it's like, I just got good at something. I can't believe I have to add a new thing that I suck at. Like you never stop sucking at things and it's the worst. Yeah, it's so hard. Never fucking stops. I'm like, I don't want to to be good at a new thing. That's my definition of success. Yeah. You don't have to learn a new skill. (laughs) Yes, I agree with that. And then she gets into this part about her book stuff. So after the book comes out, there is some interest in turning it into a TV show. And she's doing PR for this book and no one thinks that she did it. It's like a whole new level of rejection where you're just feeling very condescended to by reporters. And I think that that's such a uniquely female struggle. Anytime a female actor does something interesting, everyone's like, oh, who set you up with that concept? Do you know what I mean? You know what people say to me all the time that really fucking gets my goat? What? When comics see me at an open mic, they'll be like, oh, are you like an actress? Yeah. And I'm always like, no, I'm a comic. Just like fucking you. Literally when I started comedy, I remember I'd be at open mics and guys would be like, oh, what are you doing here? And I'd be like, what am I doing here at this open mic? I'm here to watch you, you piece of shit. I love the way you bomb. I think it's sexy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my thing is that because my jokes are very conversational, no one thinks I wrote my jokes. People think that I'm like up there accidentally tripping over punchlines and it's like no no I like they'll be like oh that was really funny you should keep that it's like yeah this has been my closer for three years like (laughs) anyway she really calls out even like Ron Howard specifically because she's worked with him directly and she's like he spent his entire childhood on camera and then he became a director no one was like but who helped you people think that she didn't write her book people don't think that women can do anything we see this also in busy phillips's memoir she talks about deciding that she wanted to direct an episode of cougar town and being so scared to ask and being so scared that she couldn't do it even though all her male co-stars had just done an episode and it was just inevitable she also does a really good job giving kind of specific writing advice like she said that james patterson advice she also has a friend who gives her very specific advice about just meeting your deadlines it's, it's his variation of the pomodoro technique which is called the kitchen timer the day before you set your timing for the next day, like how much time you plan to write. And then that next day, 
you have to meet that amount of time. You just turn off your internet, set a timer. You can have your project open and a journal open and you just have to write for that full amount of time. So that way instead... You don't have to write for the full amount of time. You have to be staring at it. And he's like, if you spend an hour just staring and not writing a word, that was your choice. But those are the only available activities to you at the moment. Like you don't get up and stretch your legs. Stretching your legs is going over to the journal and being like, okay, what can I just ruminate on about my day? Or you can work on your project and like get pages done, but it's also okay to just stare at your computer. You could write nonsense or you can work on your project and eventually it all just starts to become a muscle. Yeah. He says it's better to write a little bit every day than a lot one day and none for the next. Yes. I'm really happy she included that. I'll use that. Yeah. You know, I love that actionable advice. Then she gets into her parenthood thing, talking about how much she loves it. At this time, her book does pretty well, her novel. She gets to option it off Ellen DeGeneres buys the rights to a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And when she's like, oh, cool, who do you want to write the screenplay? They were like, we were thinking you. And then when they go to CBS, whatever person they're meeting at CBS is a woman. And they're like, yeah, go for it, you guys. She goes, if I'm ever in that position and you ask me who, I'll do my best to say you too. But in order to get there, you may have to break down the walls of whatever it is that's holding you back first. Ignore the doubt. It's not your friend and just keep going, keep going, keep going. She's like, the thing about self-doubt is you just have to do it anyway. She's like, there is no way to turn off the doubt and to start believing yourself. You just have to ignore it and persevere. Especially women in general, you like need someone to give you permission. But if you're waiting for someone to give you permission, you might never get it. And then you might never try something. You just got to try shit. And then she has this chapter called A Note from Your Friend, Old Lady Jackson, which was the most annoying chapter probably. Yeah, she just talks about she's kind of an old lady sometimes and like gives very old lady advice. Yeah. And but it's like a different person than her. And it's very like, should we all be on our phones? And I'm like, yes, I love my phone. No one gets me like my phone. It's just like wired to hear my thoughts and present to me what I need. Let me tell you something. If I could only live 10 years with my phone or 100 years without, I'd say, give me the 10, baby. <laughs> Shoot me in 2031. <laughs> Well, this last chunk is about the Gilmore Girls Year in the Life revival. And she talks a lot about what it was like knowing that it could come back. She said there was never a sense that it would never, ever, ever come back. There was always this, could there be? People have been calling for a movie or something for ages. And then streaming really made it possible. And there was a lot of talks, a lot of random things that just kind of had to sync up. And then all of a sudden, they were just doing it. Suddenly, it was happening. And she gives us a bunch of journal entries from what it was like shooting. The beauty of all being back together, how happy they were to see each other, how sad it was that Ed Herman had passed the year before and wasn't able to be a part of it because he was a ghost. It was very sweet. And it was a lot about the gift it is to be able to really enjoy something. Because a lot of times, you're living the good old days and you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. But the good old days came back. The way that they all missed Ed was very sweet. Mm-hmm. It did get to me. It choked me up a bit, but a lot of it was just stuff like, oh, on the very first day, I grabbed a random blue shirt because we were in a rush. And did you know something was scratching my neck? And when the makeup artist cut it off, she showed it to me and it was the tag. And you know what the shirt was called? It was called the Lorelei too. If that's not magic, what is? What's magic is the fact that Ed turned off the lights at one point. I was going to say, what's <laughs> magic is when someone's got my nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of like, Ed, if you're with us, give us a sign and then the, the lights turn off. I don't know. I mean, if you're a Gilmore Girls fan and like you like jerk off to this shit, yeah, give it a read. Buy the book. We'll send you one. I don't care. Yeah, they said at one point, Carol King got up and gave an impromptu performance. And that one really got me because I think Carol King is the goat. It is cool. Anybody that she knew got to be a background extra. Like all of her friends that came to visit on set, she made sure everyone had a role, including like her personal assistant at the time of the original Gilmore Girls. She got him a walk-on role. Yeah. Her brother. Like anyone who came to set, she was like, you'd be the guy holding flowers in this scene. And in Gilmore Girls, there's always a guy holding flowers in a scene. At first it felt very sweet. And then I started being like, oh my God. 
wait, was there just like a million cameos in this? She was like, this is from the time Carol King came to set. This is from the time Rachel Ray came to the set. This is from the time. And I was just like, okay, there is like too many people on this set. Enough is a fuck enough. It was yeah. one thing when it was like her friends and cousins. It was another thing when it was Rachel Ray. I was like, all right, everyone go home. Yeah, she got Peter a role. It was like a whole thing. So the one thing she's also obsessed with hinting at in the Gilmore Girls Year in the Life section is that the ending felt like a cliffhanger. She keeps being like, didn't you read that last page? Doesn't it sound like a cliffhanger? Sounds like a cliffhanger, right? Hey, everyone's aware that this doesn't seem like an ending. Yeah, are we going to do more? Are we going to do more? And I'm just like, I get it. You're trying to scope out and see if there's interest for more. If you make more, there's enough Gilmore Girls stands out there that they'll watch it forever. People will always watch Gilmore Girls. It just is what it is. Relax, dude. (laughs) So in conclusion, how did you feel about Lauren Graham? I think Lauren Graham's a sweetie. I think she's a sweetie. I think she had a very specific agenda with this book and the people it was written for probably loved it. I think if I met her at a dinner party, I'd like her. I think she'd be more real and fun in a dinner party. I mean, I didn't come out loving her, but I also didn't come out. I didn't learn anything new about her that made me obsessed with her, but it didn't affect any of the other things I knew about her, if that makes sense. Nothing I thought about her changed, and I will still continue watching Gilmore Girls as a background comfort show when Love Island is over. I thought all the advice was neutral solid yeah there's nothing like that stuck out and was like wow this will change my world but the few times I went oh yeah I agree with that she covered certain topics that I'm like I'm glad you're talking about this like the single dumb and the writing tips you know I'm happy that she wrote a successful novel I hope she has a successful writing career I hope she gets everything she wants from writing or whatever good for her you know yeah good for her Lauren Graham a cute little life for a cute little lady You guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, join the Patreon for bonus episodes. We will take any suggestion you guys want for the bonus episodes. The Wormhole on Facebook. And and we love you guys. We love you guys so much. Have a great week. See you soon. See you next week.